Hi everyone. I was just dotting down some notes about what a crazy world we live in and how fast history is moving, but I drifted so far away from the environmental theme of our Thursday podcast that I put my notes in another file and I might work on that later. I have something to do this evening, so that will probably be tomorrow. So you might see it back in my either as a writing or a podcast. Not sure what to do with it, but it grew quite long before I knew it. So for today, we will focus on the planet. And if someday some little green aliens from a faraway uh, space uh, land on our planet and will ask us who our president is, we really can't tell them. We should explain that we have some nearly 200 independent countries and we never managed to agree on one government. And that is hard to explain when we are no longer independent of each other. Because our neighbors' challenges with climate change or deadly diseases or water or food or energy or the economy or trade, they are all my challenges as well. And actually, our problems have globalized faster than our trade ever did. So by lack of a president uh, of our planet, we do have, since the end of the Second World War, we do have the Secretary General of the United Nations and he, because so far it has always been a he, he has not much power, but of course, because he, he doesn't preside over a country, but he, do, he does have a voice. And over the years, the, the voice of the Secretary General of the United Nations has become increasingly more alarmed about our common future. In the past, the Secretary General of the United Nations was normally occupied with one big conflict or one big issue that really got all his attention. But nowadays, uh, there's just uh, so much happening at the at the very same time that it's very difficult to, to grasp. And earlier this week, uh, the Secretary General, Antonio Guterres, urged Russia to end what he called the absurd war in Ukraine. And he said that the Ukrainian people are enduring a living hell. And from everything that I read, I have uh, no reason at all to, to doubt the words that he chose here. And he said, continuing the war in Ukraine is morally unacceptable, it is politically indefensible, and it is military nonsensical. But unfortunately, the Secretary General has more on his mind as well. Climate action can no longer wait if we want to keep this a livable planet. And he pulled no punches in his speech this week about what he called keeping 1.5 alive. And 1.5 is, of course, uh, the limit uh, all countries in the world agreed upon, 1.5 degrees Celsius above the uh, pre-industrial um, atmospheric temperature as we agreed in late 2015 in Paris. And he said, the world is facing a cauldron of challenges, especially for the most vulnerable. And that is a very right point to mention because inequality is always connected to climate change. And he, he spoke about a scandalously uneven recovery from COVID, again, the inequality. He spoke about record inflation, about interest hikes and the Russian invasion of Ukraine that he said risks a pending global food and energy markets. And on Russia, he said countries should become so consumed with the immediate fossil fuel supply gap that they neglect or they kneecap policies to cut fossil fuel use. And this is madness, said the Secretary General of the United Nations. 
addict addiction to fossil fuels is mutually assured destruction and not coincidentally he used there the word that people of my generation grew up with in in the 1970s and 1980s uh, when you refer to the nuclear situation that uh, you couldn't uh, destroy uh, the other um, uh, global power in the world without being assured that you would be destroyed yourself as well. And even that uh, nuclear aspect uh, is uh, surprisingly for many suddenly on the table again. Uh, I thought we had left that, left that far behind us already in 1989 or even a bit earlier. So uh, Gutierrez also spoke about we need to fix the broken global energy mix. And those are very good words that he chose. And as if to illustrate this urgency, this week both the North and the South Pole are melting. You hear that correctly. At the same time, the North Pole and the South Pole are melting. They're undergoing simultaneous freakish extreme heat with part of Antarctica that are now more than 40 degrees Celsius warmer than average. That is in Fahrenheit 70 seven zero degrees warmer than average and areas in the arctic more than 50 degrees fahrenheit so that is 30 degrees celsius warmer than average just realize the madness suppose in in the place where you are right now where you are listening that the temperature would suddenly be 40 degrees warmer than it normally is on the 24th of march so today um, we have a bit of a different show than normally uh, at the request of one of our listeners, um, Evelyn Luthi, who is, uh, I see, listening as well and who will join us a little bit later on, um, she asked us to do a special edition about the Great Melt. And the Great Melt, uh, uh, and first of all, I'd like to thank Evelyn for this suggestion. Uh, the Great Melt is, of course, uh, the book that uh, Alistair Doyle wrote about uh, the impacts uh, of climate change, uh, one of the impacts is that uh, the sea level is rising and that will impact practically everybody in the world. And one of the questions that Evelyn mentioned, would she in Switzerland also uh, be impacted? Uh, we already once discussed, I think in the very, one of the very, very first podcasts in this show, I uh, invited Alistair to discuss this book. And since then, we liked it so much to talk to each other that we made this a weekly thing. And we've spoken about all kinds of other environmental issues in about, I don't know, 10 or 15 times that we did this together. But now we made the full circle and we are back uh, at, at the Great Melt. And Alistair, I never let you wait so long before joining. I think my introductions <laughs> are getting so long that they seem to become a kind of... Uh, podcast in itself so uh, uh, let's go to you Alistair so what uh, did you did you hear Guterres speech and, and what did you think of it I did I listened to that and thanks for the introduction there and to especially again to Evelyn for those wonderful questions it's kept me thinking um, for most of the past days since you sent them over but um, first we're going to have a bit of the news from the from the past week before we get into talking about my book so I'm, I'm always very happy to talk about my book uh, but Guterres' speech was remarkable. Um, you know, we were told Ban Ki-moon, the former UN Secretary General, made a special um, focus on climate change in his, whatever it is, eight years in, uh, no more than that, it was some nine years, eight or nine years in, in office. And um, 
he he came to every single one of the annual conferences of the parties of the cops and we were told when i remember going to a background briefing about antonio guterres taking over and we asked you know is he going to have the same focus on climate change and they said well there are a lot of other problems in the world maybe not and of course now with the russian invasion of ukraine he's still managing to put a focus on it and he's he's used extraordinarily blunt language like you said alex if he was the if he's representing the world he's got it right um, in the scientific from the scientific point of view he's he's un, he's disentangling it from all the pol politics um when he talked about the the ambition of limiting global warming to 1.5 he says it's on life support it's in intensive care you know time is running out um and he talked about how we all left governments all left glasgow last year at the last cop the conference of the parties the 26th with what he called a certain naive optimism you know um because people had agreed targets for reducing deforestation cutting methane coming up with a bit more money but he said he was blunt just said you know the main problem wasn't solved not even properly addressed and he comes back to the point that the united nations says that keeping 1.5 alive will require 45 percent reduction this decade um, and carbon neutrality by mid-century 45 percent reduction in greenhouse gas emissions by the entire world and of course this year they're rising last year they rose they did fall in 2020 because of the pandemic but they're rebounding there's no sign of a peak in 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 sight so he went on to say alex yeah so he he mentioned uh, uh, this uh excellent quote from him he says we, we are sleepwalking to a climate catastrophe and so if we continue with more the same, we, we can kiss 1.5 goodbye and even two maybe out of reach. Uh, personally, I think it is already. And uh, he said that uh, the G20 has to do more. And he, he criticized a few holdouts. He mentioned Australia by name for failing to have a net zero goal. And that's polite of him because there's so much more to say about what Morrison is doing wrong in <laughs> Australia. And he called for faster action on coal. And, and the good news is that uh, all G20 have agreed to stop funding coal abroad. Um, and they must now do the same at home. And he blasted investments in coal. Uh, he said it's, it's a stupid investment. It is leading to billions in stranded assets. And uh, it's, 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 it's amazing. So here is the Secretary General of the United Nations, which is maybe the most easily way described as, as um, the closest thing we have on our planet as well, not as our president. Let's say the kind of chairman of our planet in a way. And he is, uh, is calling the people stupid. I think that is amazing. And I fully agree that he does so. I thought they were calling people stupid. It was pretty remarkable, wasn't it? You know, the investors in coal, and, and and he didn't spare much criticism for people investing in oil and gas either. You know, fossil fuels. Yeah. We've just got to wean the planet off fossil fuels, and um, he really didn't pull any punches in this speech, which was, you know, that that remark about mad, mutually assured destruction was um, was extraordinary as well. Now he said, you know, we've got to fix the broken global energy mix. And of course, you've got this uh, this looming deadline. Well, it's not really a deadline, is it? Because um, they've said we have to cut emissions by 2030 to avoid to keep on the right side of 1.5. But uh, 
you know, every tenth of a degree matters, I think, is going to be their messaging in future as we get ever closer to that, because it's going to be, as you say, Alex, it's going to be impossible to stay below 1.5, I think. Um, so pretty calls for a pedal to the metal for a renewable energy future. Accelerate the phase out of fossil fuels, fossil fuels subsidies. And, you know, I guess he's worried that climate change is getting getting forgotten with the crisis in Ukraine. We've spoken on this podcast before about you know, whether or not this is going to lead to a, a blooming of investments in renewables or whether it's just going to mean that countries are going to turn back and try and develop fossil fuels as fast as they can. Yeah, and I, I, I fear that last thing is happening. So so we, we will see a massive uh, increase in investment in renewables, and that is wonderful, but the, the climate crisis is not about more renewables. It is about less burning of carbon, and people don't... We we are really sleepwalking into a catastrophe. It it is everybody feels it's somebody else's problem, and still, even though we are now so on the brink of of a catastrophe that that we we just can never get under control anymore, and it just it just keeps continuing, and it's 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 fascinating and it is scary and there's always another crisis that gets more attention first it was it was covid and uh, and now it is ukraine and of course ukraine is 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 horrendous and it of course it should be a priority but not the only priority but of of, of course the 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 just by the pictures on television and by the by the by the, the the cruelty of what is taking place, of course, it everybody makes it, it their priority because that is what 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 keeps you awake. But I'm also awake at night, literally about about climate change. Uh, was mm. for me the, um, the the motivation to 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 drop everything else that I was doing six years ago and just fully focus on on climate. So, well, as as I just mentioned. Just just looking at this week, uh, there have been these these freak temperatures in both the Arctic and the Antarctic in the last few days. And inland in Antarctica, some some parts of the continent were tens of degrees warmer than usual, and and a heat wave uh, at the coldest place on Earth. So there's there's stunning highs. Um, uh, they included, for instance, in in Vostok in Russia. It's um, uh, a research station which uh, is is known to to have the world record as the coldest temperature ever recorded on the planet, except for laboratories, which is in Leiden, um, and that is uh, minus. I was born there, that's why I know that. Um, and that's that's uh, that place. is minus eighty nine point two Celsius, and and that is uh, that is freakingly cold. Ooh. And that was nineteen eighty three. And in Vostok, at, at, at three and a half thousand meters high, the temperature rose to minus 18 degrees Celsius, which is 15 degrees warmer than its record of about uh, 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 minus 33. So that's that's still uh, bone chilling. And, and since I live in Ottawa these days, I, I know what I'm talking about. I've quickly become an expert in cold temperatures. And scientists say that the temperatures may just be uh, an, an off-the-charge freak event rather than a sign of climate change. Um, uh, some other places in Antarctica were close to, to minus 70, but if you see more of these events coming in, in the years to go, uh, then it is a clear 
signal of, of climate change. And we have, of course, many alarm bells going off that are confirming climate change in both the Arctic and the Antarctic. Uh, but you, then you shouldn't look at one event at one place, but at, at, at more events like, for instance, um, uh, uh, the, the average temperatures that are already uh, two or three times higher than in the rest of the world. Um, so this is the time of the year when, when sea ice floating around Antarctica shrinks to its smallest uh, at the end of the, the southern summer. And sea ice shrank recently to less than 2 million square kilometers. And that is the lowest since uh, satellite recordings began in uh, 1981, which is two years after they uh, started seriously recording uh, the ice on the northern, uh, on the North Pole. Um, so that's now a long tracker and you can really draw conclusions on that because you talk about a, 20, uh, a 40 year period. Yeah. In the Arctic too, you know, the sun is starting to come back, I guess, um, with the, the, um, the, the equinox just the other day. So the sun is starting to rise again, but it's the coldest part of the year and for the ice in the, or the, the time at which the ice reaches its maximum extent of the year after freezing and freezing and freezing through the winter. Um, and some temperatures in the region have been extraordinarily high, several degrees, again, you know, tens of degrees above normal in some spots. Um, and they said that for the sea ice alone, which floats on the on the ocean, and where you know in recent years has shrunk to record lows in the in the summertime, which is opening up things like new trade routes across the northern route of Russia. I don't think that northern sea route across Russia is going to be used very much in the next few years, um, even though it's ice free for for quite a long time, and the Western companies have been using it as a sort of shortcut. To avoid the Suez Canal, um, uh, you know the the ice in the north there in the winter, the middle of the winter on February the twenty fifth, it reached what its its maximum extent for the year, uh, to you know, just short of fifteen million square kilometers. That that was actually the tenth lowest extent in the satellite record. With a record was low was in twenty seventeen. So it's not it's not like record setting, um, but the whole region is warming twice as fast as the global average. And so, you know, it's good news that the ice was not at its smallest, um, but it was not, but it was, but the record, a worrying sign here was that the record maximum of the ice extent in the Arctic was reached about two years, two weeks, sorry, two weeks earlier than usual. It's normally in, um, in March, so this time it was in late February. That means, of course, that the ice has got a head start on melting towards the summertime, so there's more melting coming potentially that could lead to much less ice in the in the summertime now so um, th this is actually an interesting development so here you see those two crises we spoke about in in and since we started on you see ukraine and climate change coming together so on the one hand we already have uh, the situation that uh, putin in all his ambitions was claiming for years already that the the passage north of Siberia is Russian territory that we are sailing in in a kind of Russian canal between Siberia and, and, and the permanent ice further up north and that he is uh, so kind to let us uh, go through through his channel whereas the rest of the world sees this as, as just uh, international 
seawaters. And now because of Ukraine, because of uh, the sanctions, there'll be less transport and also because of the international political tensions. I can imagine that much less um, ships from other countries will make use of that passage. Um, I wonder what that will do uh, to the Russian claims or Putin's claims uh, that uh, this is actually his water and not international water, since if, if soon uh, he is the only one making use of it, he can then maybe strengthen that claim. So that may, may be an, inter uh, an interesting way where these two files come together. I haven't seen anything about it on the news or in the articles that I normally read, but it's it's an interesting aspect. I was yeah, distracting you from, no, no, but, <laughs> from uh, where you were. <laughs> yeah, no, but you're right. The, um, <laughs> it is an interesting thing because the cooperation in the Arctic Council, which includes all the Arctic nations, the Nordics, uh, Russia, Canada, the United States, um, has, has kind of broken down because of the invasion of Ukraine. Uh, and there is a, they have reached some quite good agreements over the years up in the Arctic there about who's responsible for which zone of search and rescue if, if ships get into trouble up there. So, yeah. you know, is, is now a, a Norwegian ship going to be willing to go and rescue a Russian ship if it, if it, run, if it for, runs into problems in the sector that Norway's designated yeah. as? I suppose they will. I cannot see any reason not doing it. That's no, no. humanitarian uh, assistance. So. Uh, yeah, I, I, I can hardly imagine uh, that would not be the case. I yeah. mean, even in the international law of warfare, if um, if you uh, if a ship sinks another ship, you are supposed to get out and uh, and save the people that you just uh, torpedoed, yeah. which is why I still believe that Donitz is a war criminal and that the 10 years that he got in Nuremberg were far too less. And he contained until the end of he maintained until the end of his life that uh, what he was doing was allowed under uh, under uh, the international rules of warfare. Um, but it's so since there's not a hot war, but it's only a kind of heated cold war uh, that we are in, uh, I can I can see no reason that one of the parties, whether it would be the Russians or the Norwegians, would not help the other party if a ship yeah. would uh, would get into trouble. Yeah, let's hope so. Let's hope so. Yeah. yeah. But we are going um, to talk so about the Great we're Melt. We're going to talk about the Great Melt, indeed. <laughs> Back to you, Alistair. <laughs> Thanks again. Evelyn's very kindly sent us questions about the Great Melt, my book, which came out a few months ago, about melting ice and rising sea levels. So, Evelyn, thank you again. Those are wonderful insights. And thanks so much for reading the book so, so carefully. Um, for people who don't know, this book is about people living and working on the front lines of sea level rise. And melting ice. I've visited places including Antarctica, Fiji, Panama, the Netherlands, Peru. So, you know, as, as the planet heats up, there's less and less ice. Uh, I even went to Sweden where the sea level is falling relative to the land since the ice age means a lot of weight disappeared. So thanks again and for taking the time to read and give feedback. Maybe I could just throw in, I've been to Antarctica twice Actually, one time was with the Norwegian government when Jens Stoltenberg, who's now the um, Secretary General of NATO, uh, was visiting the Troll Base, uh, which is due south of um, Cape Town. And we flew there together on this uh, Hercules plane. And he was, he was great. He's a lot of fun to be with. You know, we sat, he, we, we were just two foreign journalists on this trip. Most of them were, were Norwegians. And... Um, but, you know, we sat with him and had dinner with him. We, he's, he deliberately sat us beside him and we could, you know, we chatted with him over dinner. It was a lot of fun. 
So yeah, Evelyn, you asked some wonderful questions and some kind of provocative questions, funny questions as well. I thought we'd maybe start with one of those. You asked about, you know, penguins, which um, is kind of a fun thing to do with melting ice because penguins live around the south, I guess, in South Africa and Australia and um, New Zealand. They come up there every now and again, don't they? And, um, and of course, in Antarctica. And you asked for my favorite story about penguins. I think it was visiting the um, the Rothera base of the British Antarctic Survey on the um, on the Antarctic uh, Peninsula. They're, they're not the bit that sticks up to towards South America. There are not many penguins there, but I can remember that there's a dirt runway there where the planes land and take off. Um, the, you know, there's a plane or two every day, I guess, small planes, research planes. And um, the, they try and clear all the birds away from the runway just in case planes come along. And if you're a pedestrian, you have to you have to cross the runway. There's a big sign that says, "Look left, look right, look up in the sky." As you cross the as you cross this dirt runway, and I can remember there was one time there was this little penguin. I think it was an Adelie penguin, which was right in the middle of the runway and running just in the direction that the planes take off and running as fast as it could and, and flapping its wings as if as if it was going to be as if it really wanted to see what it was like to be a bird that could take off <laughs> it, was, it was hilarious the poor little penguin <laughs> so yeah thank you um alex you have a story about penguins i think you noticed too penguins well i've i've never seen them in the wild except for uh in the south east of australia i think it was it was likely in victoria i think in uh, uh now about 20 years ago where there are penguins in australia um uh then you have to 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 sit on a kind of yeah one one spot you're not allowed to get up but latecomers are not allowed you have to sit really quiet and then you have to wait and at about sunset you see all these they're they're, they're cute they're tiny little penguins uh that are uh, that are coming out and uh, but coincidentally just yesterday I was reading I was collecting all kinds of bird stories I always like to read about birds and I, I found this story I, I read some time ago um, uh, about uh, the zoo in New York where um, there's a uh, penguin couple that uh, got um, a kind of New Year's gift uh, at the zoo where they live in New York <laughs> Uh, because it's the first same-sex foster parents couple to successfully hatch an egg. And uh, this, this chick was uh, uh, hatched on the 1st of January, so that's the New Year's gift, by um, two adult male uh, Humboldt penguins. They're called Elmer and Lima. And I, I, I remember they're reading why Elmer got his name, because... Elmer is the name for a kind of uh, glue. So what happened was when Elmer was still a fetus in the egg, I don't know if you call that a fetus if you're in, as a bird in the egg, I guess so. But when, when he was still inside his egg, the par his parents were a bit clumsy and they, they, uh, they broke the egg. So the, the people in the zoo wondered what to do with it. So and and they wanted of course to to save the little bird inside so they got some elmer glue and they <laughs> repaired the egg and um, then put it back under the parents and everything went well and this this strengthened egg then uh, broke open and elmer came out um and they've been a couple for a number of years they're they're very happy together 
And um, now they had another egg that was kind of abandoned by other parents, if I remember the story uh, correctly. And so they needed somebody to, to work on it. So they gave uh, Elmer and Lima this hack. And, uh, and together, the two of them uh, were hatching it, were sitting on it and keeping it warm. And um, they got a, a little sun on the 1st of January. And uh, so I, I thought that was a really, really <laughs> kind story uh, to share. And the way it was presented in the American news was was uh, was 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 funny because it was clearly there was a lot of let's say political pun in the way that they uh, they presented it for for those people in different parts of america than new york that uh, that that probably not agree that two male penguins can hatch an egg so uh, yeah. i thought that was a funny story but you can um, count on elmer to stick around right <laughs> and raise the yeah, yeah to stick around yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So anyway, Evelyn, more seriously, perhaps, um, you know, you've, you've raised some fascinating issues. You know, one of your questions, I think you live in Switzerland, and one of your questions is, why should people in landlocked countries like Switzerland care about sea level rise? Um, it's a great question, you know. And how do we make something that's happening at the coast relevant to everybody? I really struggle with that um, because, you know, why should someone in landlocked Ethiopia care about what's happening down in Kenya along the coastline? Why should, indeed, why should someone in Iowa care about what's happening in New Orleans? Um, it's, uh, it's, it's, you know, there are a billion, you know, almost a billion people live within 10 meters of sea level, but there's an awful lot of people living in land who won't be so directly affected by this. Alex, I know you have thoughts on this. Oh yeah, well, thousands. I mean, first of all, uh, you do care when there's humanitarian catastrophe taking place somewhere else. I mean, like people now all the way all over the planet, let's say people in Bolivia are all equally shocked about what is happening in in Ukraine as uh, as people that uh, that live 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 closer to it. So so that's one. I mean, there's just a moral aspect of 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 keeping our planet a healthy place for the next generation independent of of where you live and we we need much more this kind of holistic one planet view, but also if you want just just look at it more more practical uh, from uh, an economic point of view um, if if uh, harbors uh, drown or if you live in Switzerland and you like to eat fish um, uh, that, that that may be affected the global trade will be affected you will get refugees uh, people will uh, will will leave uh, from where they are living now either because it's it's not economically viable anymore or there's simply no place to to put your house anymore so this is gonna it's gonna change the the world economy etc and of course sea level rise is only one aspect of climate change so if the climate change gets so bad that the sea will be rising more and more rapidly it automatically means that uh, the glaciers in switzerland would also melt and uh, and of course, there's if you look at the landlocked countries in the world, um, there's yeah, there's there's nearly fifty of them, and they're quite different. I mean, Vatican City is one, or or San Marino. The both are just uh, tiny and and very close to the to the to the coastline. But you also have a country like Kazakhstan, which is huge and also uh, landlocked. Um, but yeah, all of these uh, will be will be impacted if Bangladesh uh, drowns or or if small island states uh, get submerged, 
uh, you'll just get millions, actually more like hundreds of millions or even perhaps billions of refugees if you go a bit further because it is literally billions of people living uh, within about 30 kilometers of, of the world's uh, coastline. So, yeah, so if the port that you are using um, in a neighboring country to ship stuff around uh, and, and, and the world uh, needs to be redesigned, uh, yeah, you will have to pay for that as well. Yeah, there's an interesting, I noticed today there's a Fridays for Future, Greta Thunberg's movement is having a global climate strike um, tomorrow, Friday. Um, and they put out a video, which I recommend everybody to watch, which is um, called We Don't Care, where they have kids, uh, teenagers saying, we don't care. And one of the, one of the children, one of the children, it's quite striking seeing children say they don't care about climate change, because we know that they do. And one of the, one of the boys says something like, why should I care about melting ice? It just means more, more water for the fish to swim in. And, you know, it's just absurd kind of objections to, to climate change and being stewards of the planet. And it, it turns around towards the end. So I won't spoil it for anybody if you want to watch it. Um, but, and I recommend it. It's on YouTube um, called uh, We Don't Care, if you Google that. Um, but of course, you know, Sea Level Rise is a story about melting ice. But the ice comes from somewhere. After all, the extra water comes from somewhere. And that's an acute problem in mountainous regions, mountainous countries like Switzerland. Um, Evelyn, I had a look at the latest IPCC, the UN Climate Science Report this month, that came out this month about climate change in, in alpine regions. And it talks about how mountainous countries face all sorts of problems. You know, there's, there's less tourism, less skiing is available, less predictable hydropower resources. You've got the permafrost being destabilized that can undermine buildings, there's more risks of landslides and, and so on. So there's quite a litany of effects of it's not sea level rise, but it's the root of sea level rise that's causing the problems in, in many of these countries. Um, just, just looking at the example of tourism, um, it says the IPCC says that snow cover and snow depth in the Alps has decreased. It says that 39% of ski slopes in Switzerland apply snowmaking, artificial snow. And that, that was actually one of the lower rates in the Alps. So, you know, ski resorts are running into trouble. And, you know, it's a big economic sector in Switzerland, isn't it? And banks, you know, maybe are getting more reluctant to lend to businesses that may not be viable, you know, to build ski lifts or hotels in, in low-lying resorts. Um, so that was, thank you for that question. The, the, another one you asked next is, um, do we need to re redefine statehood? Um, clearly, it's a problem for low-lying islands that could be swamped and just wiped off the map. You know, what, what happens if, if low-lying islands disappear from the map? You know, can, can Atlantis be a country still? If, can you find, can a country exist if it has, if it doesn't, if it's below sea level? It's, um, it's, a, it's a frightening thought, but um, I've been to news conferences, I remember, you know, about more than a decade ago going to one, where small island states were taught, raising the possibility of having to take down the flags outside the UN building in New York if their countries disappear. It's a, it's a, it's a fascinating international international law question, of course. I, I, I quickly have to Google for that one. And, and so there's for, for uh, statehood is, of course, diplomats define all this kind of stuff. So it's based on 
1933 Montevideo Convention. And that defines a state as, and now I'm going to mention four things, and think about, for instance, uh, the Marshall Islands or something when I describe this, having a permanent population, and uh, it has to be a defined geographical territory. So for both of these, you know, if the Marshall Islands disappear, um, that's already questionable. And then it needs to have a government, which you can have in exile, I would say, and uh, the power to enter into relations with other sovereign states. Uh, so some countries don't really meet all these requirements. So I think Vatican City is an interesting one. It has a population of about a thousand. But as you can imagine, uh, the birth rate uh, of the inhabitants of Vatican City is, uh, I think, officially zero. I hope in practice as well. I don't know the details here. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, it's full of priests and nuns, and they're all sworn to celibacy. So um, uh, yeah, is this a permanent population? I think you can claim it's, it's uh, at least you could say that all thousands of them are immigrants, uh, because by definition, nobody is born uh, there. Um, you have governments in exile, uh, so they have no uh, territory, but they can still be uh, recognized and, and enter into uh, relations with, with other states. Um, so that's it's, it's an interesting thing. Or take a country like uh, Kiribati, uh, that has the, the 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 land size of the country is is absolutely minimal. It's probably less than a province of the Netherlands, and I can assure you, the Netherlands is pretty small as well by itself. And we have twelve provinces, I believe. Um, but their um, uh, territory at sea is as big as India. Um, so what happens if uh, sea level rises and these little outcrops these little islands that are just just sticking above the water but then there's a huge area around these islands where they have fishing rights that they can either either use or protect or uh, rent out what they normally do to to other countries um are they are they losing those rights as well so it's it's uh, it's a very interesting field of um of, of international law and of course there's the question what happens to the people that are that are living there so yeah what what are your thoughts here Alistair? Well I, I don't know I think that legal scholars I spoke to for the book um, doubted you could get the world to agree to rewrite these definitions that are in that you know that convention the Montevideo convention it's almost a hundred years old and it's it's already subject to um, an awful lot of stretching of meanings, as you say, the you know the population of the Vatican City um, um, is is one of those questions, and um, I think the the view is that we're most likely to start stretching the existing definitions, like like you mentioned, Alex. You know, some small island states are already trying to do this by trying to define their maritime zones, two hundred nautical miles, off every single island. And then say, right, we've defined those zones. They exist forever now. Um, they are that is our territory because that's we've measured it, and we've lodged it with the United Nations. That means that is our territory. Even if the islands disappear, we we our claim to that 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 maritime territory will 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 remain. So they're st they're stretching the definitions already in the UN Convention of the Law on the Sea, and, and then some. You know, the, as you've mentioned one of the criteria in that convention is a, 
a defined geographical territory. It doesn't sort of say a geo defined geographical territory above sea level. <laughs> you could, you could, some legal experts say you could say, well, territory could be seabed territory if you could find a way of, um, you know, stretching the stretching semantics a bit. So, you know, you could stretch territory to mean maritime ter territory. And so you could end up with an Atlantis, a sort of a, a, a country existing just below sea level. It would be it would be weird, but it's a, it's a frightening prospect. And as you say, Alex, you know, it's more about people's migration. and Where, where would they settle? Where would the population be? Would it have to be in the same place? How, how would how would we yeah. deal with this? It's, it's going to be a big problem. This reminds me of this picture of the uh, the government of the Maldives who were holding this ministerial meeting underwater. Uh, yes. They were all wearing scuba diving gear and were sitting around tables underwater and trying to give a speech there about uh, about sea level rise, etc. It was a stunt in 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 uh, I guess about five years ago or so, just when one of the the cops started. Maybe it was during Paris or something. Um, shall we, uh, uh, Evelyn? Uh, maybe you can join us. You also had a question about uh, buckets of 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 water. Uh, before we go there, I think maybe uh, let me see if I can. Uh, how do I do that? Invite to speak. There we go. Um, maybe you can join us as well because we've been answering all kinds of questions that you wrote, but we haven't really had you there. Hi, Evelyn. Hi, Hi Evelyn. <laughs> Great to hear your voice again. <laughs> thank you for all oh, those questions. Thank you so much I, for doing this. <laughs> so, <laughs> I hope you you liked the answers so far. So I think you yeah. you you were also wrote about the buckets of water thing. Is that um, uh, should we go there next? Sure. Um, sure. If that's okay. Yeah. So so yeah. I mean, yeah. Uh, you're right. It was that was kind of a fun thing I did at the epilogue, and my and my my wife, um, Steve, who's. Um, phone is connected to this call um, uh, and our daughter Emma we went over to the west coast of Norway last year and made a little video about um, about um, the loss of ice to try and put it into human terms because last year there was an international study that worked out that in the last decade or so the world is losing almost 800 billion tons of ice off the land every year uh, glaciers like in the Alps but mostly ice sheets in Greenland uh, and, and Antarctica. So all around the world, the ice is melting because the temperatures are rising. So I got in touch with Andy Shepard, who's a leading glaciologist. He works at the Leeds University. He worked on these numbers. And he helped me. He was making dinner at the time, but he helped me over a Zoom call to figure this out. And so you know, we figured out with almost 8 billion people on the planet, it's about 100 tons per person per year. Now, of course, a ton is a cubic meter of ice. If you can imagine blocks of ice, he says he, he does it with his son who plays Minecraft, uh, where you carry blocks, you can carry blocks of ice and take them out of the sea and things. But of course, you've, if each person's uh, share is about 100 tons per year, that would fit, fill up a small apartment, a small flat. You can just look around your own house and think about a hundred tons of ice. You know that's that that would fill up a small flat, and that's what each of us, on average, is causing to melt every year. Um, okay, some of it is caused by other factors, but um, 
here we go. Each person on the planet is responsible for that. Before we even get into questions about, you know, my emissions are an awful lot higher than those of the average person in Africa, um, way, way higher um, in developed countries. So when you work, when you go back from there, 100 tons a year is roughly two tons a week, of course, and then you work it back down into days, and then you go down to hours. Uh, we worked out it's about 11 kilos um, an hour uh, for each person uh, is melting into the sea. That's the, you couldn't drink water that fast. 11, 11 liters, kilos of water an hour would be a crazy <laughs> amount of water. So we, we, we pulled a bucket of water out of the fjord and walked up to what we found was the lowest glacier in, in Norway, in the west, Buadbream. Uh, there's a glacier which has an arm stretching down to about 600 meters above sea level. So I carried this bucket um, up to the glacier. I did cheat a bit because I actually carried a backpack with um, 10 liters of water in it. Um, I didn't actually try and carry the, um, the, um, the, the sea water all the way up the hill. It would have been just too impractical. Um, but I did carry 10 liters of water up and we, you know, we dipped the water in the... Um, in the stream to 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 show us show me carrying it as we went up the hill, um, I got accused by some climate skeptics on a um, on a on a when I put out some tweets about this saying, "Oh, you're destroying the glacier. You're putting salt water on a glacier. That means it's going to melt faster because the salt will melt melt the glacier. You know what a terrible <laughs> person you are." I said, "Okay, you know." Anyway, that's the explanation. <laughs> so, so eight. 11 kilos of ice every hour for everybody. That's what we worked it out as. And I tried to illustrate that. It was yeah. fun doing it. Those numbers are stunning. I mean, every person in the world uh, would have to carry a bucket of 11 liters of water every hour to the top of a mountain and drop it there to make sure that it doesn't end up in the sea. That is, that is incredible. Yeah, it's yeah. not very practical, is it? Yeah, <laughs> yeah gosh. So we, we, we got used now to the idea of limiting global warming to, to temperature targets. So well below two degree and ideally one and a half above pre-industrial times. And um, yeah, those are, are the established goals in the Paris Agreement. And, uh, but in, in 1990, the um, SEI, the Stockholm Environment Institute, proposed three possible yardsticks that the world could, could track as benchmarks for climate change. So it, it spoke about 20 to 50 millimeter sea level rise per decade, and, uh, temperature rise, and the amounts of, of, of CO2 in the atmosphere. Yeah, the sea level rise idea never really caught on. Um, I think scientists reckon it just... You know, this is one of your questions, uh, Evelyn, as well, about why why this didn't latch on, because it's it's quite an alarming, you know, at the moment sea levels have accelerated now, they're rising at about four millimetres a year. Um, four millimetres doesn't sound an awful lot, but that's 40 centimetres a century. Um, that's double the rate in the last century, and it's accelerating every year, and we don't know where this acceleration is going to stop at. Um, but, but as a gauge of sea levels, I, th I think the problem was that it, people realized even then that we, and we still don't really understand the likely pace of melting of places like Antarctica or Greenland where, where the huge ice sheets could start sliding into the sea much, much more quickly. Um, you have a, in the IPCC, it's sort of they have one 
uh, scale out to 2300 where they say and it's a, perhaps the most frightening um, line in the whole report it says that sea level rise of more than 15 meters cannot be ruled out by the year 2300 that's wow. you know less than 300 years away which is a absolutely terrifying thought so you know since it, there's so much uncertainty you couldn't really set any goal as a, as a realistic benchmark and until until you know 10 years ago i guess when i, I can remember covering this as, as environment correspondent for reuters the central case for antarctica was that the ocean around antarctica would heat up that would mean there'd be more moisture coming off the ocean and this moisture would blow inland and it would fall as snow of course as it cooled down um, rather than as rain and that that snow falling on antarctica huge great place bigger than you know this is like the united states and mexico combined huge extra amounts of snow falling on antarctica could actually make sea levels fall because so much water would be coming out of the ocean and be dumped on this huge great ice block of ice so so you know um you could get cynics saying hey look we're fighting global warming the sea level's falling so um of course then it falls apart as a as a goal um and the, the, the goal that has been adopted now is, is a temperature goal rather than we have carbon concentrations rising as well. And there are organizations like 350.org, which is a goal of reducing the concentrations of carbon dioxide, which is now around 416, 17 parts per million in the atmosphere back to 350, which is you know a, a reasonable level. But we the Paris Agreement settled on the easier to understand i guess an easier track goal of you know holding temperature rise to well below two degrees celsius while pursuing efforts for 1.5 degrees is the the phrasing it uses so you know now we've there's definitely a move towards saying 1.5 should be the goal because people have realized that things are getting worse with every tenth of a degree but we're getting as antonio Guterres was saying alarmingly close to 1.5 already and still CO2, CO2 emissions are rising. So it's, it's, uh, yeah. this is, uh, this is scary stuff. Yeah. So, um, um, Evelyn, you, you had so many questions. Um, we, uh, yeah, we could, the two of us could go on for hours, but, uh, which, um, can, can you mention, uh, uh, some other questions such as in your mind, or do you have comments or on, on everything we said and answered already? I always have comments, you know that. Um, but... <laughs> That's great. <laughs> and I could have I could have gone on forever, but I stopped myself after a full page of questions, I guess. Um, just to first, well, thank you for the penguin stories. I love those. We need more of those, please. <laughs> and um, <laughs> just generally more penguin stories. Um, just the first question. Um, it was not why we should care in Switzerland, but how do we get people in Switzerland to care? Mm. It's a detail, but no, no, <laughs> kind indeed. of an important one, I thought. But anyway, um, yeah, but because I don't think people care enough. That's what that's why my question came from, because, you know, looking around me, sea level rise doesn't concern me. I, I don't, I'm not speaking for me, for myself, really, because I do care, but people don't, or it doesn't seem like they do. But yeah, you gave me a great answer, and I wrote some stuff down to 
you know, to think about and to maybe raise awareness on some of the issues you, you mentioned or some, some of the things you said, like, no. um, you know, the whole global trade. And one of our um, federal ministers has, has just visited Rotterdam and, you know, all the trade that goes on there and um, ships um, um, traveling on the, on the Rhine to get... Um, goods here and things like that. So that's definitely an important point as well. And I was surprised mm. that it's only 39% of um, ski slopes that use artificial snow. I would have thought it was more, but um, yeah, makes sense. And just on that quick, quick side note, um, when I was growing up, there was actually a ski lift just um, not far from here up on a, up on a hill. Um, the Dutch will call it a, a mountain, possibly, but it's a hill, and um, <laughs> and uh, that's that's been out of out of use for um, probably about two decades. So that's also something that I um, I saw firsthand around here. Um, yeah, then that those were comments I had, and everybody should really watch that video of Alistair, like with the bucket of water or just like <laughs> maybe not the 11 kilos in the bucket, but um, yeah, watch the video. It's really fun. Yeah, fancy. I think yeah. it's still your pinned tweet. Is that right? It's still my pinned tweet. Yes. Yeah, it's, it's the pinned Anybody tweet. Anybody who watches yeah. it, I'm <laughs> very happy to have that retweet as it's well. Like, uh, so thank you. Story. Oh, I should retweet yeah. it. You're right. I haven't done that. I will. <laughs> yeah. But it's, yeah, I so, think the, 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 the impact should be one motivation for the Swiss. It's uh, yeah. uh, your your income uh, from tourism will get less, not only because the ski slopes, but also because basically yeah. your mountains yeah. start to crumble down. The the fauna and flora of of the country um, is uh, is changing, and if if the whole world economy starts to collapse for the very simple reason that so many countries get get into trouble, and also political tensions will likely arise when so many people are uh, are on the move um, that's that will also impact switzerland and i think recently we have seen that switzerland is feeling less isolated than they for a long time always tried to be and wanted to be and 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 try to be strictly neutral we see now in the case of ukraine that uh, the 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 breach of international law was there so blatant that uh, Switzerland chose against all traditions uh, to to take sides and support uh, Ukraine, which which I applaud. Um, so the world is changing. We are we we shouldn't look from our nationality or as some Swiss do just from their valley or their village. I know how you're <laughs> how you're organized in your your wonderful form of democracy, uh, but. Yeah, it is. It is the, the whole world has become one village where whatever happens in some part of the village is impacting somebody else somewhere else. So, so we need more. Um, we need more solidarity, more cooperation, and more, more multilateralism. And I know that's a difficult message to sell uh, in uh, in years where. Um, multilateralism is under threat where um, nationalism is on the rise and 
where we see in the in the in the last months it's now exactly a month ago that uh, that we had the the uh, the the marker in world history of of uh, February twenty four the invasion of uh, of Russia in um, in Ukraine. Um, what we have seen now is that the world is is falling back into 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 blocks into into parts again. Uh, we're we're um, we're 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 splitting up in smaller territories instead of um, getting everybody together and put our shoulders under these these huge challenges that that should be our priority but that can't be a priority because somebody decided that it was time to go back to the middle age form of warfare and and um, invade a country of 44 million people that are absolutely innocent and were not in any way a threat to anybody um, and uh, so the the impact of uh, Putin's uh, impulsive decision to do this will be even much further and worse than what it already is for for the people involved because it it, it will impact uh, the priority that the world can give to other problems including climate change and we know that the best scientists in the world actually the governments of the world have agreed on the ipcc report um, on, on the summary, which is a politically agreed report between all the countries in the world, saying that we have no longer any time. And uh, so, although all governments agree on that, they're not, they're not acting on it, and now they're just all occupied with other challenges. So it's, it's, uh, we, we, we are in really, really dire straits in, 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 in the world now. Um, we have all kinds of other questions, yeah. Alistair. Um, can you um, you have the you have the questions that uh, um, that Evelyn sent us uh, before? Is there another yes, one? Yes, indeed. Yeah, on? yeah. I, I mean, I was going to go with question seven, if I may. Sure. Um, that's, okay. Um, yes, indeed. That's about why I put polar numbers. Bears. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. Exactly. Yeah. We... Um, go ahead. Okay. Um, in it, it was actually in the first, the very first podcast you guys did together that you mentioned that people seem to care more about, I think it was 25,000 polar bears than about those hundreds of millions of people that are displaced or dying because mm. of um, global warming. And I think I'm guilty of that as well. And I did ask the, the penguin question, obviously, as well. Um, uh, so people care more about the animals that are um, mm. in danger than the people. And how do we change that? What can we do to change that? Or maybe we can use those animals to help people care about the people as well. I don't know. It's yeah. just, um, yeah. Yeah, I think, it's, I think it's kind of a little bit like, you know, how do you get people in Switzerland to care about sea level rise? It's a little bit about education isn't it i think if we could educate people about the world and, and i think maybe we can sort of enlist polar bears on the side of making people concerned about sea level rise on that first podcast we were talking about the tuvalu stand at the cop 26 in glasgow where they they just had a had a, a, a some plastic um, polar bears standing on a plastic ice um, flow wearing red um, plastic uh, life jackets the polar bears were standing there 
Uh, and, you know, th this was in very stark contrast to all the other developing countries nearby who had pictures of starving children or children, you know, whose homes had been destroyed by a, a flood or a, or, a, or, a, or a hurricane or a, a storm or, a, you know, whatever, or suffering from drought. And, and so many more people stopped to buy that stand with the polar bears. Um, it was striking. You know, even these sort of hardened climate delegates, sort of cynics about the world, were stopping there and looking at the, the, the polar bears because it was kind of arresting in that way that you say. It is, it is that, I mean, I'm guilty of it too. You know, you see some poor polar bear and you think, you know, what's, what's a polar bear done to deserve this? What's a penguin done to deserve this? You know, um, but uh, equally, what, is, what has anybody on the planet done to deserve any of this, especially, especially young people? Um, so maybe if we can use polar bears and the plight of um, wildlife and the planet, they're the, the just another category of innocent victims. You know, our hearts go out to everybody we see on the news at the moment in, in Ukraine um, suffering these bombings and it's utterly terrible. Um, but maybe we can use use in the same way as those are used as a lever to get the West and to, to people to oppose uh, what's happening in, by, by Russia, the invasion. We can use the plight of polar bears as an extra tool to make to put the focus on how on how people are suffering. The focus always has to be on people, I think, doesn't it? But we need to, if we can use polar bears or penguins as a as an extra lever to to bring attention back to uh, back to the problems of, of of the planet in general and of humanity, of course, is our prime concern. Uh, then may, maybe maybe that's the way to do it. I don't know. Yeah, I, th I think the um, in 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 marketing you make use of um, animals that you feel attached to. So that is often mammals, and if a, uh, a specific type of uh, snake or a frog or something or is is dying out, it's uh, it's less cuddly and therefore less less attractive, um, and uh, of. Of course, uh, we should we should care for both uh, both people and and animals. I think the the other thing with animals is, by definition, they are innocent because because they are an animal. They they have never changed anything on their contribution as their species to um, uh, to the to the emission of uh, of greenhouse gases. Uh, but I see I think the the pictures you now daily see of the refugees coming out of Ukraine. Uh, which is practically only uh, women and children and and some um, some elder people. Um, that that is of course heartbreaking. Uh, their stories and and to see what 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 happens to them. So that is, um, uh, of of course that that calls uh, that calls for attention. I remember I worked for many many years on uh, on the fight against landmines, and then the. The marketing campaigns of organizations like like Halo Trust, etc., that were um, uh, asking attention for for the, the the scorch of landmines, they mainly portrayed children and women with with their legs or arms uh, blown off, which were horrible pictures. It was not a fair depiction of what was really taking place because globally it is seventy percent uh, grown-up men that are the victims of of landmines. 
um but yeah it was a little bit of bending of the truth for 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 a, a good cause and and of course it it's uh, especially with the children i mean by definition they are innocent because no child ever planted uh, and designed and, and created and sold uh, a landmine uh, to to blow another child up there were adults uh, doing all that um so i guess that's mm. yeah that's that's how uh, how the media works how our attention works uh, how marketing works in a way uh, I hope I'm still, I get a message here, please check your internet connection, but I hope you can still hear me, Alistair. I can still hear you, yeah, yeah. Okay, so then it should be okay. Evelyn, should we try one of these lighter questions that you had at the end? Which of those would you like <laughs> to address? Uh, go, go with the first one. The first one, that, yeah, that was, okay. Yeah. What was the most surprising story? Um, I guess I thought when I started writing this book, I might be able to tell where was the first community moved inland because of sea level rise and in a way i couldn't you know it's 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 sort of impossible um you know there are quite a lot of places in the world which say they're the first place moved inland because of sea level rise um because but it's probably impossible because sea level sea levels have risen 20 centimeters around the world on average in the last hundred years or so a little bit more um, but and it's varied from place to place but of course you know it's disentangling that effect from changes in the tides you know rivers meander storms damage coasts as natural subsidence as earthquakes etc so this is kind of just an extra factor that makes people move but but that hasn't stopped a whole lot of people from saying they are the first moved inland um, you know, the United Nations Environment Programme in 2005 um, said a community in Tegua Island in Vanuatu in the Pacific uh, was the first moved inland. Um, uh, Prince Harry, Britain's Prince Harry, visited Fiji in 2018 and named Vunidongaloa as the first moved inland. The, the Fijian government itself says Vunidongaloa is the first of Fijian villages moved inland. Um, and there are plenty of other places, the Carteret Islands in the Pacific are also places. But, but of course, it's, you know, how do you figure out where 20, 20 centimetres is the tipping point for somebody to move inland? Um, so, you know, I went to this, to Vunidogaloa, a lovely village in the eastern, a very remote, hard to get to part of eastern Fiji, where I met the village chief, Simeone Boto, who I talk about a lot in the book. He's one of the stars, and he, he, he showed me his childhood home down um, on the beach, which was there no longer. There was just a lump of concrete and some bits of wood sticking out of the ground. He'd moved inland um, to and built a new house, and then that, that had, the water had followed him there, and he'd been forced to move with the rest of the village up to a kilometre or so inland. Um, so... In a way, that his his was the most surprising story. It was it was a very touching. Just he just showed me around. I turned up without any appointment. Um, uh, just spoke to the village chief. He took me down to his old, showed me around on the beach, um, and he was very sort of matter of fact about it. Um, not really blaming anybody, or even though you know he could have had a go at me as being a representative of, of you know, a developed country, somebody flown halfway around the world to, to visit um, this place. Um, I did offset the emissions of the flights, but um, 
he, he was surprising. It was, it was a story of resilience and uh, battling against the odds. And you know, throughout writing this book, there was just always the sort of kindness of strangers, of people like him, just willing to open up and tell me about what was going on. Um, so it was very surprising. There's also, if you go really, really far back in time, there's of course the the the, the biblical story of um, I don't know the word in English for that. We call it zondvloed in Dutch. The the the, the water rising and everybody had to flood, to, yeah. to escape on the on the on the ark, and um, the archaeologist came about fifteen or twenty years ago with a very interesting theory. They were doing research uh, deep inside the Black Sea um, and really dozens of meters down. And there they found abandoned villages because the Black Sea is, of course, an inland sea. It's only connected to the Mediterranean through the Dardanelles Strait. And uh, at a certain moment when, when, when uh, the Mediterranean was filled up, it kind of broke through and started to fill up the Black Sea and so suddenly the water level really rose rapidly, not so fast that people drowned, but fast enough that they had to ab abandon their villages. So uh, in a way they are uh, about, what is it, five or 10,000 years ago, uh, but no longer. They are um, the, uh, the first sea level rise refugees. And the idea is that although there was no writing, uh, history writing in those days, that this was such a impressive events that it went orally from generation to generation people kept talking about it and that a few thousand years later it it still found its way um into the bible when the people started writing there was still this kind of collective memory like the water can can come uh, i find it a fascinating theory so so maybe they can uh, posthumously um, uh, be recognized as the very first climate change <laughs> refugees. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so. Yeah, I love that you put the pictures um, in the book as well, because I was just, when you were talking, Alistair, I was just looking at the books that you had of his childhood home and all that. Oh, yes, thank so you. So people yeah. should just get your book, basically. But anyway, that's a different... <laughs> Uh, thank you. <laughs> There's pictures in there as well, people. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I have it, I have it too, and to I really enjoyed it. Yeah, it was great that the publisher agreed to put photos in it because it, it pushes up the cost of printing, of course, for, and the price to mm. buy it, of course. But um, I think it really helps sell it. You know, they've got at one point you, you ask even what the favorite place was to visit, and definitely I think Antarctica mm -hmm. was. The place where we landed on this um, ice shelf in a tiny little red twin otter plane um, on an ice shelf that broke up just a few months later a few weeks later it shattered and like a windscreen into the into the southern ocean so uh, you know i dine out on that story still um quite, quite a lot mm -hmm. so that was the favorite place because it was just so remote and you know far away yeah. nobody had ever been there before I see a question coming in, uh, and and thanks, Mera, for um, for reminding me because messages pop up. I see that easier than than the chat. But the question here is: Can you discuss tipping points and runaway effects, etc.? So I guess you must have seen some of those too when when looking at uh, at sea level rise. 
At least those Dardanelles was a typical tipping point when the water <laughs> yeah, wasn't went it? Yeah, just suddenly I mean, literally bang, yeah. tipped over. Yes, yes. The the one you I mean we were talking about the uh, the Arctic uh, just now and of course you know the Arctic Ocean is covered by ice for much of the year, um, but and of course the ice is white and it's reflecting heat back into space, but there may be a point at which the ice shrinks so much that um, when the ice goes, the, you, you know, the sun is shining on water, which absorbs heat. It's a darker color and it's absorbing heat. And of course that may make the ice um, nearby melt faster. And then there may be a tipping point, a point of no return at which, at which there is, um, at which the ice just accelerates, the loss of ice accelerates and accelerates and accelerates and it's gone by, at least in the, at the end of the summer. Um, that could happen in the next few decades um, if that if that's a tipping point. There are other tipping points, like for Greenland. Um, you know, the top of Greenland is three thousand meters high, more or less, because the ice, if the ice starts melting on the top, as it does every now and again, uh, the altitude gets lower, and as the altitude of the top of the ice gets lower itself, the temperature rises inevitably because it's lower down. And then you can get a runaway melt there. So that's a, there's a tipping point. There's lots of tipping points in the climate system where you know something, some little change happens, and kabang, you've got a huge change underway. It's like yeah. you know th th there are these tipping points for what makes people move inland. What level of sea level rise do you need before lots of people move inland? So far, it's you know it's a few people, um, maybe many people. Um, because storms are much more destructive. Um, yeah, there's a lot of these yeah. these feedback loops, and strangely, we call them positive feedback loops, but their their <laughs> effect is, of course, uh, very negative. And, and yeah, the Arctic is full of it. So, so also, for instance, further on this this albedo effect you were talking about of this this reflection and this uh, uh, more black water, etc. What you can also get is if there's if the ice gets thinner. Uh, waves can uh, can crush the ice, um, and then once the ice gets in smaller pieces, there's of course more surface, and the melting goes faster. So that's that's another one. Or another feedback loop is that um, more warm water from the Arctic can now actually enter uh, the the uh, from the from the Atlantic Ocean in the Arctic Ocean, and that also strengthens uh, this effect. So. Um, and the point with a, the problem with a tipping point is that you often only know afterwards when you've passed the tipping point. So scientists uh, expect there are a lot of tipping points that we are not even aware of. So some are easy. Let's say when the the last male white rhino died, even northern white rhino, even though there are still two females left. Um, that was the tipping point because never ever again in the history of the world will we see northern white rhinos unless some scientists can do magic with their 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 tubes and DNA and whatever uh, whatever have you have you. Um, but there must be a lot of tipping points in nature that you, that you just uh, don't know. There was this 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 pigeon in the flying in above the midwest in in the americas some some kind of pigeon i've forgotten what the name of the pigeon is but there were there were hundreds Passive of millions pigeon. of them and yeah. um, you yeah. just you literally just had to shoot in the air without looking and they just fell out of the sky and you could eat them 
and it it looked like a source of food that would never ever stop it was always above you and then at a certain moment there was a tipping point there were still tens of thousands left and just in one season all of them were gone so they uh and nobody knew that and certainly not in in, in those days we talk about i think 1880s or something here and um yeah so that's on on tipping point and um and feedback loops there are a few by the way um uh, negative feedback loops that work positively so you could say um, if it gets warmer more plants will grow and therefore they will capture more uh, co2 but unfortunately the positive feedback loops that work negatively for us are in the far majority above uh, um, uh, the the uh, negative feedback loops uh, that uh, that bring something positive for us. So I, I wish it would be the other way around, and we would live in an increasingly better world. But it seems that that is not a, a luxury for us that we can live with. Yeah, indeed, yes. What, where did we go from here? I'm looking at the time. Right? We're already more than an hour. Yeah, still, we're uh, we're up. We're over still time. People want to hear more questions and answers. I can go on for hours, but I have no idea what what, yeah, what your schedule think, is because you're in the evening already. Yeah, I mean, I think maybe we should. Uh, Evelyn, do you have any more questions? You like burning questions? I know you've there'd be lots of questions there um, that we haven't addressed, um, but uh, maybe we're running into overtime here. Yeah, I think we can leave it here if if that's yeah. okay for you as well absolutely I mean, I mean as as you said alex we could go on for hours i certainly could but you know i love talking about 20, these things there's, there's nothing there's nothing more flattering even than to be asked about my book so i could i could, <laughs> I could talk all night about this thank you so much for your interest in that in well, it um, thank you guys for letting me ask all those questions Thank okay you. and yeah thank exactly. you evelyn thank you alistair and and also thank you to all the listeners right now to the to the live version um as well as um uh, to those that will uh, listen later on i'll probably be back live again i don't think tonight but i i guess likely tomorrow and in the weekend uh, i'll be back and we will always be back every thursday same time as today um uh, with alistair and of course every monday at uh, 11 uh, eastern time and if i'm not mistaken i think this is the weekend that uh, the clocks uh, are in europe uh, getting back to summertime so that means that we are on a six hour time difference uh, starting uh, this weekend again i hope yeah. i think so yeah. we'll so be if, back you, to if you change your clock next week. weekend we're back at uh, at six hours uh, difference Okay, guys. Well, thanks so much. Great. Uh, this this was fun, and uh, and uh, yeah, and buy that book. It's a really good one. Thanks, <laughs> <laughs> Alex. Thanks, Evelyn. Doing some promotion myself. <laughs> Self promotion as well. Thank you so much, everybody. For okay, listening. guys. Thanks, Alex. Bye bye. A lot of fun. Bye. Bye.